Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the April 17th uh, webinar in our New York Workers' Compensation webinar series titled Winning Issues in Litigation. Um, today's webinar is completely and totally live, so thanks for joining me here today. Please type your questions in as the webinar progresses, and I will answer your questions uh, at the end of the webinar once we get through the prepared slides. So today our topic um, is near and dear to my heart. It's going to be about how we win cases and, and what do we do to move them forward. We're going to be talking about the common issues in litigation. Next month we're going to talk about discovery, hearing, trials, and appeals and continue on in our case overview. So just to dive in, I want to give everyone just sort of a, a 30,000 foot view of how do we see cases, what's our overall outlook on them. Our goal is to get in control of these New York workers' compensation cases. We stress to employers, hey, designing and implementing a return to work program, uh, that's going to be one of the most powerful things you can do to sort of reduce your exposure and gain control of these cases, and that's going to be a big topic of discussion in today's uh, presentation. We also talk to clients about being decisive and identifying our stakeholders and our teammates early so we can make those decisions. My job is to help you navigate through and guide you through this judicial system, which many times just means explaining uh, and anticipating the system and its biases. My goal is to present you with as many practical ways I can to help you reduce your exposure in your cases, and our focus here is always on closing cases and defending them from day one with an eye towards closure. So thanks for joining me here today. That's what we're going to be talking about in our brief overview. So other ways to catch up with us, first of all, uh, please grab a copy of my handbook. I put a copy of the handbook in today's um, meeting handout, so please download that and grab it. Uh, there is going to be a section in today's webinar where I'm actually going to refer to some of the model or template letters that we have in our handbook that you can utilize uh, immediately. Um, if you're listening to this on uh, uh, video playback or something, the uh, handbooks are always downloadable from our website. That's loisllc.com forward slash publications. And if you prefer to listen to these as audio, all of our podcasts, all of our webinars are also available as podcasts. And we publish five podcasts a month here on different topics in workers' compensation and associated defense. If you're looking for something next level, you're saying, Greg, um, we, I love your handbooks. I love the information you're providing me, but give me something next level. I want some in-depth case-level discussions, um, roundtable discussions with attorneys. Check out my partner's podcast, Christian Cison. His podcast always drops the third Friday of the month. It's called Third Fridays. Uh, it is available at loislc.com forward slash podcast, and really any place that podcasts are available, it's available through that as well. So uh, before we dive into the topic, let's just talk a little bit about who we are as a law firm. Lois Law Firm is 44 attorneys. We are the go-to law firm for the top employers and carriers defending workers' compensation cases nationally. Our internal goal is to be the very best place to work in the insurance defense industry. Our mission is to help you take control and stay in control of your New York workers' compensation cases. Uh, we believe that by getting in control of these cases, we're going to drive them to closure. And the way we do that is by the very careful and uh, uh, daily application of our values, which are creativity. We're here to solve these problems. We're here to look at these cases in a new way. It's by being advocates for our clients 
it's for being professional, right? There's a, there are balancing out as ab, as aggressive as we want to be. We have to balance that out with ethics and integrity and professionalism, and finally service. Our focus is on service and being responsive to clients and building those long-term relationships. In this presentation today, we're going to talk about four topics, and these are the four topics that we can control, the things that we can push for, the things that we can fight for. Uh, the topics are maximum medical improvement, return to work issues, labor market attachment issues, and of course, prosecuting uh, fraud and concealment cases. So those are the things that we're going to talk about. And as I talk about these four topics, uh, just be thoughtful that these are all things that we can do as risk professionals, as claims managers, as case managers, as attorneys. Like these are the things where we can push the case forward, we can get in some momentum, we can get some traction, and we can get these cases towards closure, right? That's our goal. So let's dive in. First topic we're going to talk about today is maximum medical improvement. Everybody knows what that, that what these words are, but no one ever sees this in our uh, jurisdiction. We say maximum medical improvement is like a unicorn because everyone knows what a unicorn looks like. No one's ever seen a unicorn. And sometimes it feels like in our workers' compensation cases that the doctors kind of have this outlook, which is like a patient cured is a patient lost, right? And so we've got to push hard in our cases sometimes and litigate this issue of is this claimant at maximum medical improvement? Because the claimant is choosing and picking their own physicians. Are they picking the best doctors? Not always, right? They're picking doctors that they know are going to keep them out of work and are going to extend that time out of the workplace. And so it's really up to us to push and make sure these doctors are following evidence-based medicine, following the medical treatment guidelines, and returning these injured workers to the workplace. So maximum medical improvement is typically one of the first and most important topics or issues we have to litigate in a case. It's defined in the rules as a finding that the claimant has recovered from the work injury to the greatest extent expected and no further improvements to the conditions are reasonably expected. What does that mean? It means we're not returning people to their pre-injury state. That's not the requirement for our, our medical treatment. It's simply to get to restore as much function and as much workability as we possibly can. We're never going to get them back to perfect. Now, the need for palliative care. What is palliative care? It's care that makes you feel better or maybe continues to support continued functioning, but doesn't actually have a curative aspect. It's not going to cure or relieve the underlying condition. That's palliative care. And yes, that would still continue after maximum medical improvement has been reached. There's also statements in the medical treatment guidelines that maximum medical improvement cannot be determined prior to six months from the date of injury or lost time unless the parties consent or agree. And some people feel like that is a barrier to settling cases, but the truth is that's not really a barrier. Uh, even if six months has not elapsed since the time they first started losing time from work or from they first started receiving medical care, you can still settle those cases. You don't have to wait a specific or specified amount of time. You could settle a case in New York really at any time, okay? Uh, claimants are trying to avoid a finding of maximum medical improvement. How do they do it? Well, they delay scheduling their treatment. They delay scheduling their own diagnostics. Remember, they're picking and choosing their own physicians. They're picking and choosing their own diagnostics. Uh, so they're trying to, they're doing this on their own schedule and they'll sell, they'll uh, schedule out their doctor's appointments 90 days apart. Why 90 days apart? It's because that's the maximum amount of time that they can schedule out their doctor's appointments before the doctor's medical note goes stale. So you see them dragging and stretching that out. Uh, the other thing we see is them selecting a new doctor. You know, their doctor might tell them that during a treatment, 
I'll visit. Hey, the next time I see you, I'm probably going to release you back to work. And then magically, they don't go back to that doctor again, and, and they try to start over care with a new doctor, right? The big challenge we see is a lot of pondering curative care. In other words, the claimant says, well, I've been um, told that I need this surgery, but I'm worried about the surgery. I don't really want to do it, so I'm going to think about it. And we'll go into court and we'll say, judge, they've reached maximum medical improvement. Uh, judge, they're refusing this further treatment. They're not thinking about it. They're just not undertaking it. And they'll say, no, but judge, I'm thinking, I'm just scared, I'm worried. You know, I had an uncle who had anesthesia and never woke up or something like that. Um, and the boards had to address that. And I'll talk about the next slide. And the last way they avoid maximum medical improvement, of course, is by bringing in new body parts once they reach maximum medical improvement for the body part that's established or is actually injured in our case. Now, this stretching out um, of the period before the claimant is found to have reached maximum medical improvement has been so bad that the board actually had to address it. And they issued guidance and directives to all the judges of compensation. And this guidance says essentially, hey, the mere assertion that there might be possible future surgery or uh, potential invasive care in the future, that's not a bar to you finding that they've reached maximum medical improvement unless they already have a specific plan for that surgery, including an active request for it to be pre-authorized and for it to be on the calendar. The judge really shouldn't allow them to stretch out their maximum medical improvement finding. And again, they're doing this purposefully because they're they're staying home, they're being paid temp, and they're um, really trying to stretch out and elongate that long period of time. And so the boards had to address this. Now, there's some other terms for maximum medical improvement. I just want to make sure everyone knows them. Whenever the treating doctor says that the claimant has uh, reached a plateau, right, or their condition is fixed and stable, or sometimes they'll say, come back to the office as needed. That's in essence a release, right? As soon as their treatment is not being directed and controlled by the doctor, and they're being told, you can come back whenever you need us, that's it, they're done. Um, you'll also see things from the independent medical examiner. Sometimes they won't say the person has reached maximum medical improvement. They'll just simply say, uh, they have, quote, no need for further treatment from an orthopedic standpoint. So all of those things should be triggers to you when you're looking at your New York workers' compensation case and say, all right, here's how we know this person has reached the end of their curative care. We see some of these words um, coming out in a doctor's report. To raise maximum medical improvement, oftentimes we're going to have to pursue this, okay? Uh, it's very rare in my experience for the treating physician to find someone have reached maximum medical improvement. They always want to keep treating them forever or come up with some new alternative treatment method once the first treatment method reaches a plateau. So generally, we're going to have to fight about this, and oftentimes we're, the way we're doing that is by getting contradictory medical through the use of an independent medical examination. Once we do that, our, our next action really should be to file an RFA-2, that's a request for further action, it's kind of like a motion, to get this before the judge of compensation, okay? Because now we're going to move on into the next stage of our case, which is either a finding of permanent residual disability if they still have an impairment, or some type of settlement or resolution of the case. And that's, these should be the, the milestones that we're trying to push the case for. Now, we need to litigate this, and we can win this if we litigate it, okay? So this is one of those things where we're going to be vigilant about following up on the medicals. We're going to be vigilant about making sure that their condition is actually becoming alleviated or cured by the treatment they're getting. And if it's not, perhaps we're going to send them to an independent medical evaluator so that we can have some contradictory medical. Now, we need to litigate this by presenting the testimony of our examining physician and, of course, cross-examining the claimant's doctor. It's our goal in that cross-examination to get some concessions from the treating physician. And generally speaking, 
it, where they're consistently saying the claimant is totally disabled, uh, we will cross-examine them and utilizing questions that we've developed over years, we'll get them to admit, hey, there is some workability here, and that's really important. Oftentimes, we will confront the treating physician with non-medical information. It could be surveillance information, it could be information about their activities of daily living, or other information that we have. Um, it's our practice internally that after we take testimony from claimants, physicians, and our independent medical evaluators, we always submit a written summation to the trial judge. We think that helps solidify our argument and of course prepares us if we don't prevail on being able to appeal that determination. So these are issues, the issue of maximum medical improvement are issues that we litigate and we litigate them very commonly. Uh, we should be prepared to do that and you should be prepared to win those arguments. The next topic I want to talk about, and again, these are your common litigation issues, are return to work issues and the opportunity to offer someone light duty work. I said in the very beginning, this is one of your great opportunities to really reduce your exposure and reduce the life and length of these claims. I love offering light duty work and I encourage all of my clients and employers to please, let's try to put a light duty program in place. Obviously, it helps us reduce our exposure by limiting the amount of lost time there's going to be in the case. But I also think there's some very strong psychosocial reasons why we want to do this. And in the past, I always thought, oh, the psychosocial stuff, oh, that's so, uh, you know, touchy-feely and it's not really objective. And it's, but uh, ever since COVID and the lockdowns, I really believe very strongly about this as a very important thing for us to touch on. Uh, we all remember, particularly here in the New York metropolitan area, where we had such crazy strict lockdowns. You know, the first couple of weeks after there were lockdowns, I had my own employees coming forward to me and saying, when are we going to get back to work? I can't wait to come back to the office. Like, I don't like this remote. I, I miss everybody. I miss the interaction. I want to come back to the office, right? And we all probably felt like that. And then a couple of months later, we're like, okay, well, if you want to come back, you can go back. I will summon everybody's like, oh, no, no, I, I like being at home. I've got my new, I got a puppy. Uh, I've, I've reorganized my life. Everything is great. I don't want to come back to work, right? The psychosocial reasons are now becoming the impediment. And why? Because we became acclimated to being at home. And now all of a sudden going back to the office is like a weird thing. And I think that's what's happening uh, to the claimants as well. Um, they become disengaged from the workplace, they are, aren't um, working together with other people, they don't feel that collegiality, the vibe, all the fun things about the culture of working with you and, and the employer, and they don't want to come back. And so we've got to push past that, right? And we want to reduce that amount of time they're out of work because, you know, we know statistically the longer they're out of work, the less likely they'll ever return to any gainful employment. Another reason to offer light duty work is to set up that tactical defense. Um, it's that we can suspend wage replacement if they don't accept that light duty work offer. And that is money. We're touching somebody's money and that is going to create that tactical momentum towards trying to uh, reach a settlement or resolution. And the final thing here, and this is why you see the hand grenade on your, on your screen, is because by offering them light duty work and, and giving them an alternative, it actually creates a burden for them. They have to do something. They have to either respond to the light duty offer, they have to accept it or reject it. It makes them do something. It creates that moment, that sort of milestone that we're trying to create 
where we can at least get some activity out of opposing counsel and opposing claimant and get them back to work, right? That's the key, all right? So what are the rules on light duty or accommodated work? First, we've got to be thoughtful about whether we can even offer it. I do have some clients who have union or contractual issues that prevents light duty, and I have some employers that say, hey, Greg, this is a dangerous employment. We really don't want people on this work site unless they are able to move quickly and they can, they, you know, they have their, their ability to bend, twist, grasp, lift, all those things. We need that. So the first question is, always can we even offer it too. Uh, the next step is to communicate with the treating physician. Communicate with them and say, hey, here's the light duty job we have. Here's the offer we'd like to make them. Here's the description of the job and here's what we're going to ask them to do. Now in the past, uh, the treating physician rarely would respond uh, or they would say, well, no, they can't do that. And we'd say, no, no, we really can't. We really have created this tailored job for this person. Now, as of 2022, with the new medical treatment guidelines, uh, there's also a rule in there that says the treating physician can come via video chat and we can show them the light duty job. We can show them an example of it and ask them to comment on it. So what's more powerful than FaceTiming someone and saying, hey, here's the job we have created for your patient. Can they do this job? Really, it's a really great opportunity to engage the treating physician. The next step is to make a valid offer. It should be in writing, and we need to know what to do when the claimant does not accept the offer. Now, I'm not going to go through so much the valid offers, the ones that need to be in writing. Please look at the book, the handb a handbook that's in the handout today. Uh, chapter 7 has examples of light duty offer template letters that you can use. That's a copy and paste scenario to make sure your light duty offer um, works. In general, I want a light duty offer that says, here's where you're going to report on this date at this time. Here's your supervisor. Here's the job description, and the job description should be pretty detailed. Again, we're going to want to tell them how much lifting, carrying, bending, standing, sitting, grasping, kneeling, all those things that they're going to do so that they can draw a really good conclusion about what the job is. Of course, we're going to tell them what's the pay. Uh, if the pay is changing, we need to be clear about that. What are the hours? If they're going from 40 hours a week to 20 hours a week, we need to be clear about that. We really want to give them a good offer letter so they can make a decision about coming back to work. Now, oftentimes, uh, the uh, treatment uh, records are going to be the basis of our offer letter. So again, use one of those light duty offer letters. Let's be careful about what we put in that. There's great examples in the book, and let's make sure that that offer is valid. The next step is maximizing that offer. Okay, again, it gives the claimant something to do. We settle a lot of cases at the moment we make that light duty offer because the claimant really has not been acclimated to their new lifestyle and they don't want to come back to work. So great. Uh, if you want to move on with your life and go in a different direction, that's wonderful. Let's resolve your workers' compensation case. So this is really a moment where we need to communicate and be careful and make sure that we have a plan for when the person pushes back against that light duty offer. I'm also going to admonish everyone listening to take that second and be careful. When you make that light duty offer, all of a sudden, uh, you've created a burden for them to come back and get re-engaged in the workplace. Oftentimes, we see claimants go out and seek a new physician and start treating for new or different body parts. All right, That's something you have to be on guard for. Okay, Beware of that, because that's going to throw a grenade into your rowboat, and you don't want that. All right, so that's light duty work offers. Again, this is probably the most powerful tool we have in our toolbox to resolve cases and create some momentum. Now let's talk about a second concept. The second concept is labor market attachment, and this is when we cannot offer light duty work to our own partially disabled claimant, right? So we can, if we can offer light duty work, that's great, offer it. If we can't offer them light duty work, then under the workers' compensation law in New York, 
the claimant has an affirmative obligation to seek work somewhere else within those medical restrictions. So what kind of cases does this apply to? Well, I would tell you, look at your cases where the claimant has either an adjudicated fixed temporary partial disability or the treating doctor conceded, usually after cross-examination, that they have some ability to do light duty work. Or you've got a case that hasn't been litigated, but you've got some implied statement in the medical record that indicates that they can do their job, right? And sometimes you'll see in the medical records, this person's 100% disabled from their job. Okay, that doesn't mean all jobs, just that job, right? So they have a duty to go out and look for some other job. Now, what's been found over the years is the claimant has the obligation to look for a job in, quote, many places. And they also have to show that they're trying to get a job, right? So the, the second part of looking for a job means they also have to, for example, uh, register a resume, attend an orientation session, get some um, workplace uh, coaching, and that's all available for free through New York. They participate in the Federal Department of Labor one-stop program, and that's all available for free. So where the claimant isn't even after actively looking for a job, they have to at least show that they're looking to improve their resume, improve their interview skills. They're participating in the Department of Labor one-stop uh, program, which gives them things like a job bank to register their resume, resume writing assistance or help, even does job retraining, and in fact, they can even go and get college classes for free through the one-stop um, uh, system. And in the old days, they used to have to go in person to the one-stop location, and there's one in every county in New York, and they would have to uh, sit there with a counselor and do, work on the resume and do all those things. Nowadays, it's all done online, so it's very simple. And it's all done through a cell phone or, or a web browser. And they can go to these uh, one-stop facilities and register their resume and get some help and put their resume into a job bank. Now, the interesting thing is, as easy as that burden seems to be, very few claimants do it. So as soon as you raise attachment in your New York workers' compensation case, they have to respond. Uh, you know, statutorily, it's their burden to do so. And oftentimes, Again, this is where we're going to settle cases because the claimant just doesn't want to do it. So the steps that are involved here are first, there has to be some kind of light duty release, a medical note, uh, a statement from the physician that they have some ability to do some work. Um, the next thing is let's make them a light duty offer or request that they look for work within their restrictions elsewhere. How do we know that they're looking for work within their restrictions elsewhere? Well, the board has created a handy-dandy form called the C-258. This is the claimant's independent uh, work search form. And on this form, they just have to record all the places they look for a job, where they left their resume, and what the result of that was. Now, very rarely does the claimant actually produce one of these independent job search records uh, without us going to court first and saying, judge, we need to see how they're um, doing and that they are actually looking for a job within the restrictions. So oftentimes we will file a request for further action asking for a judicial order saying, judge, please order them to complete this form. Now, once you get the form, let's look into it. Let's see if they actually applied for the job. And let's make sure that these jobs are actually within their working restrictions, right? And oftentimes we'll discover that they're applying for jobs they're either not qualified for, have no experience in, or could never possibly do with their partial temporary disability. So let's look into them. The way we look into them is usually by way of subpoena follow-up. And what we discover oftentimes is that the claimant has not actually applied for the job they claim. So this helps us to maximize the impact of raising this argument.
First, it creates something for the claimant to do, but also where we discover the claimant is not affirmatively looking for work, although they're pretending to be or reporting that they are, that might now create a credibility defense for us. That might actually create a fraud defense for us. So that's something for us to look into. And this, again, this is us being active. This is the claims professional and the attorney working together to make sure that they are pushing and, and, and gaining the momentum and leverage in this case. Also, when you raise labor market attachment, again, this is where a lot of cases settle. So there should be a settlement discussion between the attorney, the defense attorney, and of course the claims professional making sure, hey, when we do this, we know it's gonna provoke a reaction. Are we going to be ready to start talking about putting this case away? And finally, my last little warning here is be on the lookout. This is where we see claimants trying to seek new treatment, bring in new body parts, or restart the clock, right? Restart their case over. Uh, and again, this is something where we want to be vigilant and make sure we're staying on top of. All right, next concept I want to talk about is one of my favorite concepts. Uh, if you ever come to any of my webinars, you know I love to talk about fraud. So let's talk about raising fraud in New York. New York's got a wonderful fraud statute, and I'm going to just summarize it for you in a couple words here. It's lying about any fact, get a benefit. That's what it is. Uh, interestingly, our New York workers' compensation law was passed in 1911. It wasn't until 1996 that we actually had a fraud statute, and now we do have a fraud statute. It's Section 114A, which has all of these words. Don't bother to read it. Just know it's lying about a material fact to get any benefit, and that benefit could be either medical or it could be money. So what do we need to show to win in a fraud case? What are the proofs we need to show? First. The law says we need to show, quote, substantial evidence supporting a finding that the claimant knowingly made a false statement in order to obtain workers' compensation benefits. Well, what does all that gobbledygook mean? Well, case law shows us that substantial evidence simply means any evidence, more than nothing, okay? We, don't, we can't raise fraud based on bald assertions, but if, as long as we have any documentary proof, any testificant, any witness, anybody who can come forward and help us uh, uh, proffer or uh, portray or explain these proofs to the court, that works. And the reason I say this out loud is because we all get those calls from the employer who goes, Greg, I know this person is lying, they're faking it. And I'm like, okay, great, do you have anything that I could utilize in court besides you just have this feeling, right? So I need substantial evidence. What does it mean? Anything, a video, an audio, an Instagram post, uh, any information that we can rely on. Next, that they made a willful or knowing misstatement. Okay, any misstatement, and I'm going to go I'll talk about what a misstatement is, because a misstatement is also um, concealing your ability to work to, and making someone else say that on your behalf, like your doctor, for example. And finally, that they did it for the purpose of obtaining benefits, either medical or money. So that's a really powerful fraud statute, and the proofs that we need to show are really pretty easy uh, if we do our homework. Now, the only downside to our fraud statute in New York, the only downside to Section 114A is that if we win in a fraud case and we demonstrate that the claimant has uh, testified fraudulently or presented themselves fraudulently to a doctor or is working or committing any other kind of fraud, the only benefit that is affected by a fraud finding is money. They are still entitled to medical treatment. Okay, so the only thing that happens is their money stops flowing. I get a lot of clients who say, Greg, what's the point of even raising fraud because I, I win on a fraud and I still have to defend the case because they can, they're still entitled to medical. I said, okay, but think about it. The only reason they were going to that medical is so that they get money, 
right? And now you've taken away the money, the secondary gain factor in them trying to get all that medical treatment. Because remember, they're faking their injuries. They don't really need the treatment. They're a fraud, right? And so what we've discovered is, once you take away that secondary gain factor, once the money's off the table, we discovered that they're not really pursuing any more medical care. And the reason for that is, they were faking it. All right, so let's talk about the different kinds of proofs that we're going to adduce or bring forward at trial. Um, the two kinds of proofs are covert and non-covert. And we're all familiar with covert proofs. You know, it's surveillance, it's, uh, you know, a, a covert observation. It's generally going to be directed by the adjuster or the defense counsel, and they are done for the purposes of litigation. So that's, you know, generally what we think of an investigator in a van with a video camera, right? But the other kinds of proofs that we present uh, much more frequently are non-covert proofs. What is a non-covert proof? Well, it's any general observation that we know about the claimant that we're finding from published or known facts. I'll give you an example about a published or known fact. I had a case involving a claimant who claimed he could do no work. But we knew that he also owned horses. And it, we later discovered um, that uh, we had this suspicion that he was racing these horses because these horses were raised for, for racing purposes. They were raised for harness racing purposes. And what we discovered, we put covert surveillance on the claimant, and we never were able to obtain any videotape of him either racing or training horses. However, there is a newspaper, which is the Horse Racing News, which publishes the results of races. And even though we missed the time the guy was actually racing his horses, he was published in the newspaper as winning harness races as a jockey. Okay, so that's published in the newspaper. That's a known fact. It's not something that we have to bring in um, covert surveillance agents or detectives to testify about. And we were able to use or rely on that to prove that he was actually engaged in gainful activity while he was claiming to be temporarily totally disabled. That's a per se fraud. Okay, that's a fraud win. Now, the other kinds of non-covert observations that we're making all the time are the stuff that people are posting about themselves on their own social media. It's so crazy, but everyone's putting themselves under self-surveillance and posting it all to social media. So non-covert stuff that's coming in through social media has become incredibly powerful, and we're using it in lots and lots of cases. The only question we have about any of these proofs is, how am I going to get this into court before the judge? What's the document? What's the witness? And the easiest stuff is the not covert stuff. That It's so simple to authenticate because it's the person publishing it themselves. All right, now I'm going to tell you my favorite fraud story because every defense attorney has one, but mine is particularly good. I have a claimant. His name is Douglas Becker. I'm defending Western Pest Services. This is a published decision, so I can talk about it all the time. It is hilarious. Dougie Becker claims that he injured both of his knees while working as a pest control technician. By the way, this case is about 10 years ago, just so you know. Uh, and he claims he injured both of his knees. Well, he's out of work for a while, and the co-employees start coming up to the supervisor and saying, hey, I, I know Dougie's not working for us. He's out sick or something, um, but he keeps asking me to come watch him fight professionally. And the employer's like, what? And he goes, yeah, he claims that he's a professional wrestler, and he keeps inviting me to these professional wrestling matches. So the employer gets annoyed, and they tell the uh, carrier. The carrier puts surveillance on him, and we put days and days of surveillance on him, and we never caught him doing anything. So we said, I don't know if this is so uh, realistic. And then somebody showed us this. So here's our lovely claimant. And even though his name is Douglas Becker, he also fights under the name Adam Flash and also Ladderface. And there's our claimant. 
at the top of his ladder in the ring, diving onto his opponent who's outside the ring. True story, uh, after that we presented that to the judge, I said to my adversary, I said, well, that's pretty clear-cut fraud. I don't think I've ever seen such clear-cut fraud. My adversary's actual argument is, judge, everybody knows wrestling is fake. All right, wrestling might be fake. I don't know the answer to that, but I'll tell you what, it sure looks pretty real to me. And the judge said, look, that, that wrestling might be fake, but I saw the guy dive off of a carpenter ladder onto his opponent who was outside the ring. It looked pretty real. All right, so that was a per se fraud. And that's pretty much one of the most blatant frauds I've ever seen. And that's why this slide has been in my deck for 10 years. All right, section 114A is powerful. It's a great statute and we utilize it in about 25% of our cases. Why is it powerful? It's because the duty is on the claimant to be truthful. The claimant can't have someone else lie on their behalf. That's the same thing. So this goes to the concealment of any material fact. They have a duty to disclose all personal activity and work activities, even if those activities are not paid. So think about your a claimant who's also a volunteer at their church or Little League or something like that. That all counts as work. It doesn't have to be work for money. It could be work for any benefit uh, at all. And the uh, rule says that uh, ongoing medical, uh, sorry, on ongoing um, money benefits have to be rescinded or stopped. The other thing that's powerful about it is that, generally speaking, the appeal courts will rely on the credibility determinations of the trial court. So where the trial judge finds that the claimant is an incredible fraud and finds that the claimant um, did commit fraud, very infrequently will the appellate courts overturn that. So once you get one of these findings, they stick. Let's talk about some basic examples. Obviously, working while on temporary total disability in any role is going to be a fraud. Even obtaining passive income from a passive activity can count. Unpaid activity on new business not yet opened is work. In Angora, in that case, versus Wegmans, the claimant was found on surveillance building a bar because he had a plan with a friend to open a bar. And in his defense, he argued, wait a second, that's not fraud. I wasn't getting paid for that work. And the judge of compensation rightly found that entrepreneurial activity, even if unpaid, to open a business is the same as working in a business, regardless of the fact that you weren't paid a wage or a salary. Other examples of fraud are things like just blatantly making up the accident. We've all seen these funny videos where the claimant looks up and down the aisle of the retail establishment, doesn't see any supervisors, lays on the ground and claims they slipped. And they clearly didn't slip and they clearly staged the accident, okay? Um, where the claimant is making up the circumstances of the accident, that is pure, per se fraud. Failing to disclose injuries to prior or same body parts, super key, right? This is why we fight so hard in our New York workers' compensation case to make sure the claimant signs and executes an empl employee claim form, a form C-3. We want them to execute that form because as a required part of that form, they have to disclose any prior injuries or treatment to the exact same body part. So that's super important for us in determining whether or not they're committing fraud. And it doesn't matter if that prior injury or condition is not work-related. That would still fall under uh, uh, something that we would get apportionment or credit for, so they have to reveal it. Some other examples of fraud are the misrepresentation of your activities of daily living. Uh, where we're telling the treating physician, hey, all I do is lay in bed all day and drink beer and watch Judge Judy, I'm in so much pain. And then you get that video surveillance which shows them really just kind of going about their normal day, driving a car, walking normally, all that stuff. That's going to be found to be a fraud because they're concealing their actual work abilities. Um, criminal activity. 
And unfortunately, this often comes in the context of diversion, taking their opiate medication and selling it, and then being found guilty of a drug crime or selling their uh, drugs as a controlled substance. That's work, right? So there's actual case law where the claimant argued, well, it's uh, illegal, so it's, it's not work. Yeah, it's still work. You're getting paid money to, to perform an act, so that's the definition of work. Um, the other examples of fraud, the ones we see sometimes, the magical improvement outside of the doctor's office where they come out of their doctor's appointment, they take off their neck collar and their cane, they throw it in the trunk of the car, they don't use it for the rest of the week until they go back to their doctor the next week. That is clear fraud. Now, fraud is both strategic and tactical and it has both impacts in a case. It's strategic because if you win, you can foreclose your future money exposure and if you prevail on it, you might get reimbursement of all the previously paid indemnity, so you can get restitution in the state. A fraud finding can also result in a criminal prosecution, although we do refer those cases for criminal prosecution, very few of them actually get prosecuted. And what we've discovered, and what I said early in, the, in this presentation, is that once money stops flowing, medical usually ends. But fraud's also tactical, because when you raise fraud, the next thing that happens is the claimant has to testify. And you don't reveal all of your supporting evidence, you know, what you have in your back pocket until after the claimant testifies. So that once you raise fraud, you have created tactical leverage in your case. Your adversary doesn't know how good or how strong or how in-depth uh, your proofs are. They don't know. They don't, they, we don't tell them, I only have six minutes of video, because we might have 60 minutes or six days or six weeks of video. We don't tell them that. So they don't know. So oftentimes, if you don't have the strongest fraud proofs in the world, you can still bring them forward. And what will happen is the claimant will have to testify on their own behalf. They don't know what you have. And oftentimes, they'll tell the truth. Okay. The other thing I like to mention about fraud is if you raise fraud and you don't prevail, that doesn't mean that issue is foreclosed forever. If you can show later in the case, in another context, they've committed fraud, you can bring it again. So there's no such thing as double jeopardy in fraud. You can bring it over and over again. Now, I have some best practices for covert inf investigations. That's when we're using a detective or an investigative unit to look into the claimant. Uh, one of my um, best practices is always do multiple days of surveillance. You know, the one day surveillance is so unlikely to be successful. Two, always use a different investigator for each date. Three, please don't give me any reports. I don't care about the reports. I want to see the actual video we obtained. If there's no video, I don't even need to see a report. What are we talking about? But, 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 sometimes my clients will say, Greg, I need reports, otherwise I don't even know if these investigators are going out and looking at these people. If reports are a must, then one report per day be sent. No multiple day reports, and I'll explain why in the next slide. We also think the best practice is to make recommendations for the best time for surveillance. If you start to learn about the person's patterns, that's useful. If you learn about the, when their kids go to school, because you read in the physical therapy notes that they keep moving their physical therapy appointments because they have to get their kids here or there, that's a great opportunity for surveillance. Um, you know, you know it's their birthday. You know you have an IME coming up, something like that. Please make those recommendations. Now, why do I have these best practices? Uh, and the answer is because I want to neutralize my adversary's attacks. My, my, the reason is I want to amplify and support the findings of our evaluators. So if you don't use my rules, and you do what a lot of carriers or employers do, they use, they ask for reports, they use the same investigator for multiple day surveillance, you're always gonna have the same problems in defending that case or defending that fraud finding. First, your investigator is gonna be cross-examined with their own report. 
So that's why I don't like reports. Uh, now, I'm the one, uh, our firm is the one that made case law in New York that says when you get an investigator's report, that's litigation privilege. You never have to turn it over. But so many judges push about this, and they want the reports. Oh, if you bring in an investigator, I want to see the report. At this point, I said, don't even get me a report. I don't want to see it. It's un not useful. And your investigator ends up getting bogged down being cross-examined with the minutia in their own report. It's not useful for us. The next thing is we need to always overcome the good days and bad days. The classic, classic cross-examination of our investigator is always the same from claimants. I think they must teach it to them in plaintiff attorney school on their first day of plaintiff attorney school. Because the situation they always have is they have an investigator up on the stand and they know the investigator has this great video of the claimant. And then the video, the claimant is doing jumping jacks and mowing their lawn and walking the dog. And there's all this great stuff that the investigator captured. And the standard cross-examination we see of those investigators is the first question plaintiff's counsel asks is, how many days did you watch this claimant? And the investigator will have to tell the truth. Three days, four days, five days. So you watched them for five days, yes. And on one of the days you saw them mowing the lawn, walking the dog, exercising, doing jumping jacks, yes. And the other four days you didn't see them do anything, right. Okay, isn't it possible then, Your Honor, that they had good days and bad days? Uh, they'll ask the investigator, isn't it possible that the other days you didn't see them, they were just laying in bed, writhing in agony and pain, and they couldn't move? And they'll make that argument, and the judge of compensation will usually go for it. So that's not useful. It, it destroys us. And what ends up happening is the length of surveillance actually ends up working against you, because all of the days we didn't actually surveil them or observe them doing something, that will actually create the inference, well, those days they couldn't do anything. They must have been in so much pain. Okay, so we find that that's the standard cross-examination. I want to neutralize it. So if you do follow my rules, no report, and use a different agent every time, first of all, there's nothing to cross-examine the witness with except for the contents of the video, which really speaks for itself. The second thing is there can be no good days or bad days. And the reason there's no good days and bad days is I'm only going to put on the investigators who actually observe the claimant. If we use, did five days of investigation and five different investigators, and on only one day we saw the claimant, I'm only going to introduce the testimony of the one investigator who actually made an observation. And all of a sudden, the length of surveillance actually helps the judge create the inference that, wait a second, you only watched him for one day? Because that's my first question. It will be my leading question. My initial question will say, how many days did I ask you to watch this claimant? And my investigator will tell the truth, so you hired me for one day. Oh, and so on this one day, you saw him mowing his lawn, doing jumping jacks, and walking the dog? Yes, that's what I saw. All right, thank you. Turn him over to opposing counsel. You want to ask this guy any questions? Because he's going to kill you. Don't do it, right? So that's how we set this up. Uh, if you have two days of observations, obviously I would introduce both of those uh, uh, observers, right? But I'm not observing the no observ. I'm not introducing my. I'm sorry, the no observation days, and in that way, I'm reducing the impact of that good days, bad days cross examination. And frankly, once you put someone on the stand, you say, uh, "Hey, how many days I ask you to watch the claimant?" And they say one day. Man, you've just eliminated your adversary's uh, avenue to attack your witness. So this is really strong. Some more best practices: our dues are do raise fraud early as you can. Uh, don't wait until you have some kind of perfect entrapment or try to keep building on the fraud. There is case law in New York that says if you introduce fraud too late in the case, after summations or after testimonies already taken place, 
you might be out of time to present it. And I know it's um, sometimes very attractive to us to sit there and say, hey, maybe we, we got this one good day of surveillance. Let's try to build five more and, and build on it and try to build this perfect case. I'll tell you, I wouldn't do that. I think when you get some good surveillance, you have some good testimony. Let's go with that. Let's not wait too long. Let's not waste the opportunity. So do, as a defense attorney, carefully plan the cross-examination. We do want to entrap the witness. We want to make sure that we are setting the trap, that we are getting the claimant to testify correctly so that we are going to be ready to attack them. What that means is the statements that they've made in their own medical reports, the statements they've made to the independent medical evaluator, we're going to want to capture that and start moving from big picture questions into small specific questions to trap them deeper in our cross-examination. We do that very carefully here. We train attorneys here from day one how to build those kinds of cross-examinations to make sure that we win on these types of fraud claims. Don't let the claimant use weasel words. Uh, during their testimony, they'll, they'll love to say things like, well, I can walk the dog time to time. You know, when my pain comes and goes, we really have to do things very carefully on cross-examination to limit that. Um, we don't want to signal to them where we're going in our cross. We really want to hit them as hard as we can with the surprise evidence. And we're thinking about who's the audience here, and the audience here is the judge. And even if we have our own opinions about the judicial sort of biases of always trying to be generous towards the claimant, Nobody likes being lied to, and if you can show the judge that they're being misled or lied to, they really will come down hard on the claimant. So we like to confront them with as much documentation as we can have. We want to make sure that we're using the board document numbers that are coming out of the trial docket and lots of specifics. And we're not going to allow them to squirm out of the finding. Um, you know, the other thing they like to do is claim that they didn't understand the question or didn't understand its plain meaning. Uh, oftentimes we're taking testimony through an interpreter and they will claim that they didn't understand uh, what the question was posed to them by the interpreter. So we are very careful about making sure they don't squirm out of it uh, during the uh, testimony. Keeping the end in sight when you start in a fraud case is making sure that you're thinking about, hey, the use of fraud or raising fraud is really going to result generally in some kind of um, compromise. It's, it's momentum, it's leverage to get them to the bargaining table. Uh, sometimes we're going to use Section 114A defenses strategically because we're looking for a complete dismissal or a demand for restitution paid back to the employer. And there's also sometimes a strategic use that I don't want to lose sight of, which is serving as a warning to co-employees. You know, some of our larger employers are like, Greg, I want to send a message. I don't want this stuff going on in my workplace, and I want you to go after fraud vehemently. And we're not going to use it as a tactical tool to settle cases. We're going to use it as a strategic tool to teach people that they don't do this in our workplace. And again, we're very happy to tell our defense in that way. But we have to be thoughtful when we start off with a fraud argument. Are we being tactical? Are we being strategic? So starting to think about those two things. So I hope this was a useful uh, webinar. I'm really trying to impress upon everyone that you can win these how much are cases. You can win these return to work issue cases. And you can absolutely win fraud cases. We do it all the time here. Our best at practice is as soon as you have enough evidence to support your case, bring it. Let's not squander these opportunities. Let's get that tactical momentum. Let's get engaged. You know, so much of the advocacy I'm talking about in today's webinar is within our control. It's up to us to do it, and we can bring it. We can get conflicting medical opinions. We can offer that light-duty work or create that light-duty work, and we can investigate these cases fully. So let's get engaged. All right, let me turn it over to the questions. 
let me see what I've got over here. And I'm going to open up my question panel. So if you haven't typed it in yet, oh, I see a whole bunch of questions in here. This is great. Uh, uh oh, I see some. Um, I see Ann. She's an attorney. She's asking me a question. This is going to be a tough one. Let me start off at the top. Okay, first question is. Steve says, Greg, can you raise the issue of labor market attachment if the employer considers the claimant employee but is unable to offer light duty? Essentially, can we force them to look for work with another employer despite anticipation to return to the insured once capable? Great question, Steve. And this is one of the defenses I've had them raise. They say, Judge, they never fired me. How can I be asked to go out to the market and look for a job within my restriction somewhere else? That's what the law requires. And in fact, this year, we made the case law uh, this year that says even if they're a unionized employee, they still have the duty to go out and look for work within their restrictions. Okay, so this is a powerful tool. Labor market attachment is powerful, and, and it's not intended that we have to separate people. We have to fire them before they have to go out and look for labor, uh, look for a job somewhere else. Okay, they don't, that's not how it works. Oftentimes you'll hear opposing counsel say, well, they don't have to look for a job somewhere else. You haven't fired them. Nope. All they have to do is have a less than total disability to have that obligation to go look for work. So good question. All right, second question. Um, the issue of the racehorse. If they were not racing but collecting winnings, would this be considered passive income and not within Section 114A statute? All right, Steve. Good one. That's a good twist. Uh, very interesting idea. I would still make the argument. I'd say, hey, passive income, but like how actively are they supporting, marketing, engaged? Again, you're creating that tactical opportunity for a settlement. So I think that's a great one uh, to bring. And I would bring it, even if they weren't the person actual jockeying that horse. All right. And uh, ask this question. Greg, if you establish that an injured worker made a material misrepresentation in, a seeking, in seeking medical care and the judge agrees it was fraud, why is the worker not precluded from seeking further care? Do the judges ever uh, order workers to reimburse for medical care they wrongfully secured. Okay, so, and the reason um, you would still raise fraud, you raise fraud is because your future indemnity is gonna be cut off. Okay, that, that's the only thing that we can cut off. We cannot cut off their entitlement to future care. And really that's intended to protect the truly injured worker who has a disability, but who's been doing some lying and maybe stretching of the truth to keep it going for maybe longer than it should have. Again, all of these laws are interpreted with liberality and generosity to the claimant, so I, I guess that's why they did it. But the statute itself claims that, or allows that. Now, the judge finds that they're a fraud, that they're procuring medical based on concealment, but the judge actually doesn't have the power under Section 114 to preclude further medical. The only thing the judge has the power to preclude is further payment. What we've discovered, though, is once you stop the payment, the secondary gain that all of the momentum towards getting that care is gone and, and it really disappears in most cases. In fact, every case either then resolves for a section 32 lump sum dismissal or they just disappear. Uh, so we see very little medical. Um, the question you also asked was, do the judges ever order workers to reimburse for medical care they, they wrongfully secured? The answer is yes, we've won those. Uh, the interesting moment about that is that the judge of compensation can order restitution or reimbursement of anything that was fraudulently obtained, and that would be medical or indemnity. The real problem we've seen is in actually collecting, right? So we've won cases in, because the court doesn't, the workers' compensation board doesn't have the power, for example, uh, to levy 
or to secure reimbursement from anybody's bank account. So then you have to go into superior court, you do a superior court action, or actually New York Supreme Court action, um, so that the sheriff will actually execute against their bank accounts. Um, so very difficult to get restitution. Um, I've been at this for 20 plus years. I can count on two hands how many times we've actually received money back restitution. Um, we recently just did one, um, did get some restitution in a case. Very rare. It's still up on appeal. Um, so I can point you to some cases in the case law um, that where we've done it, but again, exceedingly rare that you're actually going to get paid back in this jurisdiction. All right, good questions, everybody. Thanks for sticking around. Thanks for sticking around to the end. I, I hope I answered everybody's questions I could. Next month, we're going to talk about discovery, hearings, trials, and appeals. And then we're going to spend our summer talking about how we resolve cases, so permanent disability and settlements, and things that impact case resolutions. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. I hope you have a great rest of your week. And I'll see you next time we do this webinar.